0: Hello and thank you so much for joining me. This is Professor Alistair Duff and the Polymath Podcast. I want to talk this time about the information revolution. I think it's fair to say that all of us feel that things have accelerated. Technology has changed so much that we're living in, I think people would accept this, we're living in an information age, a digital age, a computerised age, and some of these changes that we're undergoing, which are worldwide, are quite disturbing and quite puzzling. So, hopefully, in this session, I'm going to be able to give some perspective on that whole issue. And this is something of a specialism for me, so you know, I would hope I, I get things right this time. First thing I want to say is that you need to put things in historical perspective because this isn't. The digital revolution isn't the first information revolution. In fact, if you do any history, you find people saying at the time that they were experiencing an information revolution. They might not have used that term, but that's what they were talking about. An information explosion. Too much to cope with. Too much information to manage. If you go back to the 17th century, for example, Gottfried Leibniz who was and is a famous philosopher, he wrote an essay in 1680 called Precepts for Advancing the Sciences and Arts, and in it he moaned about, and I'm quoting directly here, that horrible mass of books which keeps on growing. He also lamented that the, disorder will become nearly insurmountable. Now, it might interest you to know that Leibniz was the inventor of calculus and an acknowledged genius. If he couldn't cope with the information explosion of the late 17th century, how would his peers have fared, I wonder, his contemporaries? So he was experiencing it, and we've got exactly the same thing now in the 21st century. So put it in historical perspective and don't, you know, don't suffer from presenteeism or the recency bias, as it's been called, and think that everything is completely different now. A second point I want to make is that these information revolutions are never completely either or. What they tend to do is add a new layer onto society, onto our experience And as Daniel Bell put it, who is a very important figure in this space, he said, these revolutions thicken the texture of society. So we're not saying that we've moved out of industrial society, which is so familiar, better the devil you know, into a completely different post-industrial future. Rather, we've got industrial society... And that's on top of agrarian society, pre-industrial society, farms, fishing. We've even got a few mines in some places. These still exist. These still go on. Then there's industrial society and economy. And on top of that, we've got post-industrial society, information technology, the services society, the rise of professionals and technical experts with all that that entails. So it's not either or, it's rather a development. And I'm not suggesting that industrial society hasn't had certain aspects displaced and removed forever. A lot of the jobs in factories have gone forever. But industrial society hasn't completely disappeared. So to quote Mark Twain, reports of its demise are somewhat exaggerated. The third point I'd like to make is that it's a two-way process. Technology has been changing society and is increasingly changing society, but also society shapes technology. And if you do academic work on this issue, you always get warned against technological determinism—the view that technology, by itself, in a linear way, in a simple way, in a determinate, excuse me, way changes society and society has no choice so that gives technology a kind of status it doesn't have because society the forces of society like capitalism and politicians and the way users people like you and me actually take up technologies these shape the technologies and so it's a social shaping of technology that goes on and a sort of determinism both ways So that's a good way of understanding what's going on and not getting too, you know, despairing about it because technology isn't autonomous and it can't, not even AI, artificial intelligence, they can't rule over us because society shapes AI and shapes all information, technology. Another point I'd like to make is that you could argue, notwithstanding some of what I've just said, that this information revolution is the biggest and best someone once said if karl marx were writing today he wouldn't write his classic das kapital he would write das information or to not misgender it deinformation it's a feminine word in german german in the german language excuse me so He would be talking about information and the information theory of value, not about capital and the labour theory of value. That's a very interesting line of thought, isn't it? That information has become fundamental to the economy in the way that capital did in the industrial era. And before that, in pre-industrial times, land was the source of most value. And you were very lucky if you inherited land and very unlucky if you didn't before capitalism came along and gave opportunities and even Marx acknowledged this to a new group of people from impoverished backgrounds modest backgrounds to make some money and take on the landed aristocracy you might say continuing continuing. sorry about that in Marxist lines that it's a permanent revolution this is a term from the great marxist leon trotsky he's the guy who wrote the revolution betrayed about the soviet union under stalin when stalin banished him and later had him assassinated i might add he used this phrase permanent revolution and you might say we've moved into permanent revolution when it comes to technology because really we can't wake up in the morning without hearing about some new development whether it's robotics artificial intelligence whatever it is a new company that's wiped out the old way of doing things really it's virtually every day that the world is being changed permanent revolution so thanks marxism for that useful term but actually, it was no Westerner, German or otherwise, who invented the information age. It was really the Japanese. And a lot of people don't know this. I mean, we all know that Jap- Japan is high tech, but and we look up to Japan, but we don't realise that Japan invented the information society concept. I've done a little research into this, detailed research, and the term was first used... In 1964, in a magazine, which I won't, I won't name it, a, mag, a media magazine it was, in 1964, we got this term, Information Society. Of course, it was in Japanese, and the term was Joho meaning information, shakai, meaning society. So that was the christening, really, of our epoch, done by the Japanese, that far back isn't that interesting and they also invented the word johoka which means informatization and that's a very useful term because it enables us to think about the informatization of different things like of the home with smart meters and home computers and all that and the informatization of particular industries it's a very useful process term so they invented both information society that's the sort the sort of end state and informatization the process that leads to the information society i've really developed a very keen interest in japan and i've been over there a few times i was invited out to speak at a conference in tokyo by a guy a japanese scholar called yuichi ito whom I'd interviewed, actually, and we developed a friendship. I think I'd call it a friendship. He invited me out to speak at a conference. I was the only Westerner there, which was quite an honour. And he let me stay at his house, which was a wonderful house in the suburbs of Tokyo. And it's quite a modern house, but it's in a very old setting. And he actually had his grandfather's house still up in, at the back of his garden, and that was a traditional, is a traditional Japanese wooden home, quite modest. And there was a well in the garden, and he sh- took me to local places and um, which most tourists don't see. And I really felt I was inside Japan, and Japan is just absolutely magical because it's an incredible combination of being very high tech, as I've said, from the 1960s they were interested in the information age and of course the great companies arose like sony and you know all these consumer electronics firms which whose products we buy they were pushing the information society they were pushing computerization and telecommunications in the 60s and best and best sellers were being written about it but they're also paradoxically very Old school, old fashioned in terms of their culture, their technology is ahead, but their culture is, well, I wouldn't call it backward, but it's, you know, it's old fashioned and people bow when they meet you. And this sort of thing and, you know, the service in restaurants and so on is incredibly deferential. It's a very nice experience. And this combination of high tech and sort of low tech culture is intoxicating. It's actually quite magical, Japan. I don't know if other places out there like China, Singapore, Korea, and so on, are like that, have that sort of heady combination. Perhaps they do, but I haven't been to those places, but it's certainly there in Japan. I feel it's a magical place in some ways. But if you want to understand the information age, the place you've got to go to, really, in terms of Western understandings, is, of course, Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is in California. It's in what's called Santa Clara County, which is south of the city of San Francisco. And our information revolution, the Western information revolution, started in Silicon Valley. I have always lectured on that and talked about it, and then I decided I'd better go out and find out if what I've been saying is true. So I got a grant to go out to Silicon Valley, uh, and I'd organised to interview a bunch of people whom I called information revolutionaries. That is, people who'd helped make the information revolution in the 60s, 70s and in the 80s and beyond. So I interviewed some incredible people uh, like, well, let me think, there was the CTO, do you know what that means? The Chief Technical Officer of Twitter. And was it Twitter? One of the uh, top companies anyway. Also, I interviewed an older guy who was part of VisiCore. Now, you won't have heard of VisiCore. I'm sure you've heard of Twitter. You won't have heard of VisiCorp probably, but the VisiCore produced VisiCalc, which was the first electronic spreadsheet, first digital spreadsheet that was paid for. And Apple bought that, or used it, franchised it, something or other. And it was VisiCalc that turned Apple Computer into a profitable company. So it's the first spreadsheet, and you had to pay for it. And so that is ha- has helped to make Apple the household name that it is. I mean, everybody's there. Facebook are there. Twitter are there. Apple are there. Uh, LinkedIn are there. PayPal are there. Airbnb are in Silicon Valley. All the big players who have so much shaped our lives, recently and are continuing to do so they're all in silicon valley there's only a couple of exceptions of course there are many exceptions but two i'll mention are amazon which is in seattle and microsoft of course a big player which is i think also based in seattle then you've got skype which is european but really the majority of the household names are in silicon valley it's a tiny space Silicon Valley, and they're all crammed in there. It's amazing. And the older names, the older generation, like Hewlett-Packard and so on, They Xerox, anyone remember Xerox? Well, the first photocopiers, Xerox was in Silicon Valley. Sun Microsystems. I interviewed a guy who'd worked for Sun Microsystems, a guy called James Gosling, and they invented JavaScript, which, if you look it up, is quite important for the working of the World Wide Web. So it's an amazing place where you've got all these great, some of you might not think they're great, but they're great in the sense of big and influential at least, great companies based there in the Valley. I also interviewed Howard Rheingold. You might have heard of him. He's been called the first citizen of cyberspace, and he coined the term virtual community, which is what Facebook is and MySpace was. It's and Twitter is. They are virtual communities. LinkedIn is. A virtual community. Well, he was involved with, with the well, which was the first virtual community when very few people had personal computers and even less had their personal computer linked up to other personal computers. And that the well was one of the valleys, Silicon Valley's early virtual networks, or social media, as we would call them today. So I interviewed Howard Rheingold, and he had a lot to say about, you know, the revolution. They literally thought they were making a revolution but how revolutionary is it? I mean, it happens within capitalism. Reingold emphasised that to me, and most of the guys I interviewed, and women, were quite sympathetic to capitalism. You know, they saw themselves as changing the world, but using capitalism, as they put it, doing well by doing good. So they didn't see a great, you know, contradiction between capital accumulation and profit making, and philanthropy. They thought the two went together with the right kinds of companies. And some people would be critical of that, but there is an idealism in Silicon Valley because the counterculture started, as everybody knows, in San Francisco. Or you know that was the sort of epicenter of it, the hippie culture, and that vibe went down to the valley, which is just south of San Francisco. So a lot of these early computer guys, like Steve Wozniak of Apple and James Gosling and Howard Rheingold, they were part of the counterculture. And what's that about? Well, its values are basically, you might call them Christian values, uh, peace and love, community. So they brought these values into their early work in making computers and computer-related innovations, so it's quite interesting that that it was baked in at the time. This sort of new, sort of idealism was baked into the early computer industry. And in fact, the, there was a term. There is a term as you know, user-friendly. Is this laptop user-friendly? Is this new app user-friendly? But in the Valley, it had a double meaning it meant, is it friendly, you know, is the company friendly, like Sun Microsystems, is it friendly to users of drugs? (laughs) So there was an... Because, of course, that was part of the counterculture as well. So user-friendly has a hidden meaning, in case you didn't know. But the Valley was amazing. I went out there, did these interviews, attended things, watched looked, listened, and it was magical, just like Japan is magical. Durkheim, the sociologist, spoke of effervescent social milieu, by, what he, by which he meant periods of intense interpersonal activity and spontaneity. And his classic example was the all-night reading all night sitting in the french parliament just after the storming of the bastille so this all night sitting when everybody was so charged with what was it liberty equality fraternity with those ideals they were just they sat right through the night making new laws to change france for the better from feudalism and you know the tyranny of the king a new equal society. That was a period of intense interpersonal invention. And I would like to say that Silicon Valley is like that. It's an effervescent social milieu and wonderful things happen in milieu like that. But there is a downside and you can't be too starry-eyed about Silicon Valley or about Japan or about the information revolution more generally. We shouldn't get left behind by the information revolution. We shouldn't be because that is, you know, that is like the Amish. They won't take on any technology beyond basically pre-industrial technology. So we can't, you can't reject the information revolution and become an Amish, or with no disrespect to them or respect their values, but it's not the right way to deal with innovation and technology in the world. Or like the Luddites, you know, those Nottinghamshire guys of the Industrial Revolution era who went around smashing up the new machines because it was putting them out of work. We shouldn't be Luddite or Neo Luddite. We must embrace the information revolution, but we have to do it with open eyes and understand the downside of it, the flip side of the information revolution. That there are, you know, bad effects of it, the digital divide, for example, and the invasions of privacy and you know, the capsizing of social institutions and of jobs, you know, for example, the London taxi going out of business because of uh, Uber. And, of course, there are protests about these kinds of things because it's disrupting people's livelihoods and it's disrupting social norms, sometimes in an unhelpful way, for example, in the invasions of privacy, which we're increasingly getting blasé about and I think we'll, we might regret that one day, as I think I have covered in the past or will cover in the future in another podcast. This is Professor Alistair Duff and the Polymath Podcast. I'm drawing to a close. I'd like to mention just one other person that I met in Silicon Valley, and he was the most articulate person I had the privilege of encountering Encountering, excuse me, there. And I hadn't planned to interview him, but I was in Mountain View at the train station, wanting to get into San Francisco, and I was waiting for the train, and I, there was this guy sitting on the bench, and I went up to him. There's no one else on the platform and I went up to him and started talking to him. a really nice guy. His name is Herbert Freeman. And I asked him about himself and I realized he'd got a great story. And I said, can I interview you? And he said, no problem. So I started interviewing him and asking him him what he thought about computerization, about Silicon Valley, about the new opportunities and the innovations and the technology and everything. And he said some very interesting things. He'd been a Vietnam War. He was a Vietnam War veteran. And he'd been in the communications corps, but he couldn't get into the industry when he came to Silicon Valley after the Vietnam War. And he was actually quite bitter about that because, of course, communications ought to set him up for a good job in the valley. And he felt there was discrimination against him because of the colour of his skin. And if you read the academic literature on Silicon Valley, it does suggest that it is quite a bro culture, you know, quite a waspish uh, culture, white culture. And that's, e- that's now. So in the 60s, 70s, 80s, that was almost certainly a much worse problem then. So Freeman had, you know, he's like part of the victims, the disconnected. He'd lived homelessly for... S- decades he said he'd just recently got local council accommodation of some kind and in fact his landlady is Viet- or was vietnamese and owned a mercedes-benz and he was quite bitter about that because he'd fought the vietnamese in the vietnam war and he didn't like the way the vietnamese had come in and got lots of good jobs in silicon valley a lot of asian people very bright people in Silicon Valley, but he was a bit bitter about it. I think he had a rather twisted view of that. But its ju- I'm just trying to say that there are victims, there are losers, as well as winners in Silicon Valley. There are losers from the revolution that we're experiencing today, the permanent revolution, as I've suggested it might be called, of information technology. A final point I'd like to make is that COVID, lockdown, which has been global, I've talked about a couple of local places, Japan and California, but lockdown was global, and that, I think, was a major boost in pushing us into the information age. That, that was an information revolution. Really, if you think about it, overnight, literally, we went from being offline To online, and more or less the revolution worked. Of course, there were some people who couldn't get online, but the majority got some kind of access to online, I believe, in most countries at least. And we did things differently. Suddenly, we were teaching online, we were conferencing online, we were having relationships that were virtual and often long distance. We were mourning, you know, funerals were conducted online, parliaments sat online. It really was quite a revolution, and that has, was a step change in the direction of what the Japanese call Joho Shakai the Information Society. It pushed us online, and we had to use Zoom and all the rest to just live and survive. We had to use Amazon instead of the local bookstore. We had to do stuff virtually. So it pushed us all into a new stage of johokka, of informatization. And of course, it's not stopping with big data, the Internet of Things, artificial intelligence. Really, I'll need another session about these things. But suffice to say, We are experiencing a digital revolution which is changing society so drastically. But we need to understand it, put it in perspective, and be critical about it. And really, just we need to somehow tame it and domesticate it and make it work for us as we seek to build the good society which I hope you want to build as well. Hopefully you found that useful. This is Professor Alistair Duff and the Polymath Podcast. Do join me next time, please. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.